Texas Wine Club blind tastes and rates hundreds of Texas wines each month, and only the best of the best make it into club shipments. It's the wine club that everybody's talking about. You can attend one of the wine experiences that are happening around the state to learn more. I'm teaching the ones in Dallas, and I've got dates in August and September on the calendar. Or if you're ready to sign up, visit TXWine.com and use the code ThisIsTexasWine to get $100 off your first shipment. There are options for 3, 6, and 12 bottle membership tiers and more great benefits like free tasting certificates at the wineries that are part of the club. Get the scoop at TXWine.com and use the code ThisIsTexasWine. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 67. My guest today is Amy Nimick, the new co-owner of Texas Wine Lover. And that's just the latest of several different roles she's had in wine. We talk through how she got her start in wine, what she's learned along the way, and her new role. But first, there's lots of Texas wine news. Since my podcasts are coming a little less frequently this summer, there's just a lot to catch up on. So buckle up. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. Harvest is going strong in many places across the state. It's been an interesting vintage, but aren't they all? It's looking like a healthy, large harvest, so that's encouraging. Of course, hail knocked out a few key vineyards, but hopefully everyone will be able to get the fruit they need. A few folks have something to say about this harvest. Doug Lewis of Lewis Wine says vineyards are in great shape considering how tough last year was on them, and there have been the typical pressures associated with lots of rain, but the main issue has been hail. William Chris Wine Company said due to mild weather during pollination and close to average rainfall, we are expecting a great crop with potential above average yields. Bending Branch has a lot going on. A press release says that they will have their largest harvest to date, bringing in more than 30 grape varieties from over 30 vineyards for Bending Branch and Custom Crush clients. Bending Branch received its first fruit, Blanc de Bois, on July 8th, and later this season, they'll be receiving the first ever Charbono harvested in Texas. That's coming from Talent Vineyard in Mason. Bending Branch has previously worked with Charbono from California. Okay, Bending Branch, y'all made me do my homework because I'm not sure I know much at all about Charbono. I don't believe I've ever had one, but here are three quick facts I found out. First of all, Charbono is more widely known in Argentina, where it's the second most planted grape variety after Malbec, but it's known there as Bernardo. Its roots trace to the Savoie region of France. And Charbono boasts flavors that skew toward blue and brambly fruits, plums, and spice. The acid tends to be fairly fresh, but not dominant, and tannins are moderate. Okay, back to harvest updates. Dave Riley from Dukeman Family Winery says that given that we never have a normal harvest, this year is turning out to be fairly normal. Our forecast yields are coming in on target, and we're excited to get our first harvest of Vermentino since 2016, which will help us get our popular white wine back into distribution. 
We're also excited about a bigger than normal crop of Sangiovese, which we didn't get at all last year. Michael Cook in North Texas says harvest is in full swing in North Texas, with most whites having been picked and most reds being picked this weekend. Estimates are 70% of vineyards will be picked by this weekend. For many, the spring brought rains and mild temperatures, which helped vines ease into the season with healthy growth. Some experienced spring frost, hail, and even tornado damage, while others had a picture-perfect spring. Black rot and downy mildew were particularly problematic due to the wet and mild spring, but many were able to keep tight spray programs. Mother Nature turned up the heat as anticipated, but began at a more normal time compared to last year, when 100 degrees Fahrenheit temperatures began in May. Unfortunately, over 20 days in a row of 100-plus weather, very warm nights, and no rain means ripening hastened at the start of erasion, and then with photosynthesis becoming arrested, BRICS levels have stalled at around 18 to 20 for many. Reports are coming in with yields ranging from light to moderate to bumper, and although sugar was lower, pH and acids were ideal. A couple of new varieties for North Texas had their first harvest this year, including Picpoul Blanc, Carmenar Noir, and Pacente Noir. Following harvest, growers will need to focus their attention on post-harvest vine care in order to ensure grapevines are as best prepared for the forecasted cold winter. I talked with Katie Jane Seaton of Farmhouse Vineyards this week, and she reports that vineyards in the Texas High Plains are looking great and have lots of fruit. They were glad to see a normal year for fruit set, and their Morved and Tempranillo have rebounded after that crazy freeze. They're still in Verasion, and harvest is a couple of weeks away, most likely. Also from the Texas High Plains, Boland Vineyards experienced some hail damage this year in the Malbec and Merlot vineyards, so fruits from those varieties is thin, but Tanat is just getting started with Verasion, and they're expecting a late September harvest. Their Morved is wrapping up Verasion now and will be harvested soon for their Teenage Wasteland Rosé. Michael and Rossanne Mitrioni are some of the newer growers out on the Texas High Plains. They're reporting that their sixth leaf vines look great. Michael says that he's hearing that a lot of growers are having record crop loads. Sangiovese will be the first thing that they'll harvest for rosé, and that should happen next week. And then the whites will follow in the next couple of weeks. Meanwhile, they're about to open a tasting room in Fredericksburg. So keep your eyes open for Michael Ross Winery out on Old San Antonio Road, right outside of town. That's the end of the quotes. This recent heat situation in some parts of the state, like in the Hill Country and in North Texas, has been challenging for people trying to grow grapes there. I've heard the term heat dome more than once. Scientific America says a heat dome occurs when a persistent region of high pressure traps heat over an area. The heat dome can stretch over several states and linger for days or weeks, leaving the people, crops, and animals below to suffer through stagnant, hot air that can feel like an oven. And what happens when grapevines are subject to extreme heat? Oregon State University's Extension has an interesting article about this subject. But the summary is that in the period between verasion and harvest, severe heat over 105 degrees Fahrenheit can reduce vine photosynthesis and slow sugar accumulation. In addition to yield losses, 
Fruit quality may suffer from heat spikes due to various effects. Extreme heat can slow sugar accumulation and increase malic acid respiration, leading to reduced berry acidity. Well, Texas vineyards often struggle with high pH anyway, so that's just not good. And when photosynthesis slows or stops, that means that grapes aren't ripening. But certainly this vintage, there's more great news than bad. And by the way, the Texas Hill Country Wineries keeps a list of fruit that's available. So if there's something that you're looking for, be sure to check out that list. It's got fruit from across the state, and I'll link to it in the show notes. Here's some great news. Congratulations to William Chris Vineyards for being named one of the top 100 vineyards in the world for the second year in a row. The top 100 list recognizes the world's best and most diverse vineyards. William Chris came in at number 60. They're the only vineyard recognized from Texas and one of only six from the United States. Who votes? Well, the Voting Academy is made up of over 500 leading wine experts, sommeliers, and travel experts. Last year, William Chris was ranked 56, and that was the first time that a Texas winery had ever been included on the list. Bending Branch announced that Chris Missick, formerly of the New York Finger Lakes, has joined their winemaking team as a consulting winemaker. He will spearhead the white and rosé wine programs. He joins Dr. Bob Young, who's the CEO and executive winemaker, winemaker Greg Stokes, who has consulted with Bending Branch since 2007 in both Texas and California, and assistant winemaker Chad Kurtz, who manages the day-to-day operations. August 4th was National White Wine Day, and Forbes writer Lana Bordelot included the Dukeman family Roussan from the Oswald Vineyard, 2021, in her roundup of white wines that are a bit off the beaten path. And last month, she included two Texas wines in her list of all-American rosés for the 4th of July. They were the Dukeman family winery Dry Rosé, 2022, and the Ron Yates' Grenache Rosé from Farmhouse Vineyards 2022. And in her July 29th article on Forbes.com called Summer Wines, the Heat Wave Edition, she includes Bending Branch Winery's Pickpool from 2022 from the Texas High Plains. Also included the Pedernalis Cellars Over the Moon Rosé and the Ron Yates Rosé from 2022 from Farmhouse Vineyards. Hey, if I owned a Texas winery and wanted some coverage for my wines, I might try to send some samples to Lana Bordelot, who seems to be writing about Texas wine on the regular. The July edition of Bon Appetit included an article by Sam Stone called For the Love of Lubbock. In it, he highlights what makes Finn Walter's Lubbock restaurant so special. The restaurant is called The Nicolette, and it was one of Bon Appetit's 50 best restaurants in 2022. Finn's goal in creating the restaurant after cooking in kitchens around the world was to create an experience that could only be had in his hometown of Lubbock. The article and the accompanying picture include the red, white, and rosé wines that are created just for the Nicolette by another Lubbock local, Kim McPherson. McPherson Cellars is located just blocks away from the Nicolette. Check it out the next time you're in Lubbock. So I knew that Casaro Winery's John Matthews was a retired Dallas police officer, but I didn't know the extent of his career until I read True Crime and Wine in the July edition of D Magazine. 
and it is quite a lengthy article. The author, S. Holland Murphy, details her experience going to Cassaro's True Crime and Wine series, where attendees get both of those things, true crime stories straight from John Matthews, as well as Texas wine from Cassaro. They've got tasting rooms in Ovilla and Corsicana. And John says, this is the only place in the country, maybe even in the world, where you're going to find an award-winning winemaker that captures serial killers. The article mentions that John is the co-author of a book called The Eyeball Killer. It's a firsthand account of the investigation and arrest of a notorious serial killer. And I bet you can guess why that guy was called The Eyeball Killer. John's book is currently being developed into a feature film called The Eyes of Jefferson, and John is serving as the executive producer. He's also the current president of the Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association. John says that these nights talking about stories from his law enforcement career are his therapy. Well, I practically need therapy just from reading some of the crime accounts that are in this D Magazine article, so I can only imagine. True crime isn't really a genre I enjoy, but I know many people do, and I bet those folks are also listening to the podcast Texas Wine and True Crime, which is not affiliated with Casaro. There are a few Texas wineries that are on the market. A few have been for sale for years, and others are newly on the market. In the past week or so, I learned that West Cave Cellars Winery and Tasting Room is one that's newly on the market. It's in Johnson City, and it's listed for $3.75 million, which includes a 30-acre property, a 2,200-square-foot wine tasting room that was recently remodeled. They've got the hideaway, which is a two-bed, two-bath, short-term rental, and various winery buildings as well. The listing states that owners Alan and Margaret Fetty are willing to serve as consultants if the new owners would like to keep them on board for a period of time but they're selling because they're about ready to retire. Another winery that just hit the market is in Tyler. Pella Legna Winery is just one part of a property that's called Rio Neches Ranch, and it sits on a whopping 1,200 acres in Tyler, and that would explain the $26.5 million price tag. There's a gorgeous 9,000-square-foot home that has incredible views, and it's also set up as a horse cow, and hay operation with miles of river frontage that make it a great place to hunt. And there's news of a new tasting room coming soon for North Texas. Landon Winery purchased a big building in Gainesville. This will be Landon's seventh location. Gainesville newspaper reports that Landon Winery purchased this 20,000 square foot building. It's a two-story building right on the historic downtown square in Gainesville and the sales price was $1.05 million. Sad news, Rancho Loma Vineyards has ceased operations, at least for now. In posts on social media, the following statement was released by manager and director of wine production, Ed Brandecker. He said, It's unfortunate that the ownership of RLV is announcing suspension of its wine operation and production. We've reached a point of needed reassessment and recalibration of our future efforts and therefore have halted RLV business functions. In addition to the closing of the Fort Worth Tasting Room, we have turned over the Coleman Tasting Room Wine Inventory and Wine Club Management to RL Ventures for continued sales of recently released wines. And I was also sad to see that the Hill at High that's been operated by Kerrville Hills Winery has closed the tasting house in High and will be refocusing their efforts in Kerrville. 
Last episode, I mentioned an exciting travel opportunity for listeners to go to France with me in 2024. I'm partnering with Pablo Valky of Gourmet Tours Worldwide, and we're working together on a trip that is of special interest to people who are excited about Texas wine. We've put together an itinerary for a 10-day trip to southern France and Bordeaux, and we're taking 10 people on this adventure with us. Here's Pablo to share a bit more about this trip. Pablo, tell me about Gourmet Tours Worldwide. So Gourmet Tours Worldwide uh, founded in Texas, in Houston, Texas in 2008. It's a company that specializes in doing tours around the world that have uh, food and wine as a thematic, or food, wine and beer, if you will. And um, I try to do tours that are like a mix of small and big places so that it's not just a very touristy tour. I try to make it to where the tour is a little bit more challenging in uh, than a normal tour would be, uh, where the content is higher end. So either the wines or the people that we meet are, are higher end people that can t- tell us a little bit more from behind the scenes. Uh, it's a small group travel so that we, actually behind the scenes is possible. And... Um, and we do destinations that are known for both for their for the food and for their wines, like in Europe, uh, Spain, Italy, France, Germany, and then in South America, Peru and uh, Argentina, Mexico. We basically take care of everything that, that is necessary to do this trip successfully so that the people only have to be there, show up every morning, ideally hungry and thirsty. Hey, that's no problem. And ready to learn and ready to, to have fun. So that's wonderful. Well, I'm thrilled about this trip to France that we have scheduled for April of 2024. And I know that this spring you did a trip with Dale Robertson, who many listeners know, who was previously the Houston Chronicle as a sports writer and is also a wine writer and aficionado. Tell me a little bit about that trip and then the plans that we've already made this year for next year's trip. Mm-hmm. So um, the tour with Dale was in the southern part of France because it's a part that many people would not normally visit on their own. Uh, plus, uh, Dale actually has owns a home, a second home in uh, in the hot Alps of uh, France, so uh, which is about two hours, two and a half hours in from Marseille. So we try to uh, highlight that area because it, uh, there's a lot of uh, wine regions there that are very interesting. Uh, you know, with this, starting with the Provence and then uh, going over to the Rhône, uh, Chateauneuf-de-Pape. And then we also went to Languedoc-Roussillon. So we already made good progress in that area to, to meet people that are interesting for our tour, uh, we, which in our tour, the difference will be that the focus will be a little bit more on the grapes that are so widely planted in Texas. And, uh, you know, to give the whole tour a little bit of a Texas touch, because of the fact that uh, so many grapes come from that area. And we will visit wineries that have Texas connections. So people may know Tony Parker, who used to play bo- basketball for the San Antonio Spurs. He owns a winery in, uh, in the Provence area as well. And then uh, we will have several other wineries that uh, produce grapes that we, we are very familiar with in Texas, like, for example, Viognier, Rousan, Marzan, uh, Grenache, Chiram, and so on. And uh, a few of the smaller ones that are coming up. And over the last few months, I've been hearing always more and more the uh, Pool grape being named mm-hmm. uh, as, as a grape that is increasing in production in Texas. And that, that, that actually comes from a little village in the, uh, almost at the coast past Montpellier. So the plan is also to go by there 
And then at the end, we would finish up in Bordeaux, which we didn't do in the tour with Dale. And we would finish up in Bordeaux and see the, the, the probably the, the mothership of what modern winemaking is in, in today's world. And um, of course, there's also excellent uh, study possibilities in Bordeaux with the Cité de Vent, one of the most complete uh, wine museums in the world. And uh, we will also use this to do a little uh, stint into Cognac to uh, visit uh, the statue of uh, T.V. Manlon, who, of course, uh, for us Texans is a very important figure in the wine world and became a very important figure in the wine world for the French people as well. So, Yes, I, I read that it's just a plaque, though. I don't think it's a statue, just a plaque of T.V. Munson. So I don't know. We'll have to figure out exactly where that is, but... Um... I'm anxious to see it and to see uh, all that's outlined in this trip. I love that there's a great mix of visiting wineries. And as you've mentioned, you know, talking with winemakers and owners at kind of a deeper level than you may get at some um, just basic tourist type of winery visits. And there's also a lot of culture sprinkled in from visiting Marseille, a very diverse, um, beautiful city, We'll be visiting um, the Van Gogh Bridge and some Roman ruins and all kinds of um, important features of that part of the country of France, which, as we know, is just slightly smaller than Texas. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, but we'll also be taking the train between the south of France and Bordeaux. So that will be a fun experience and we'll be able to cover more ground by doing that. I understand that the accommodations that you have selected are high quality, and that will be quite comfortable. And the food and wine should certainly be stellar. Yes, so the, the accommodations that I usually take for my tours are going to be at least four-star hotels uh, throughout the whole tour. And if I can manage to find something in the five-star range that is uh, pricely comparable, then I will also do that. Um, I, I believe, uh, for instance, the hotels I'm looking at in Bordeaux are, 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 are probably going to be a five-star hotel. So trying to get the, the best hotel that I can get for the price. And uh, so, so this is mostly because exactly we have a lot of ground to cover and I want the travelers to be able to rest properly in an air-conditioned room, uh, which is not normal everywhere in Europe. So I want them to be in an air-conditioned room and I want them to be able to, to rest really during the, during the night. Uh, so that they are always fresh and uh, eager to learn more the next day. And um, the same goes for our transportation. It's going to be a van that is dedicated to us. Most of the times it's a Mercedes Sprinter van, so the van is pretty comfortable with reclinable seats. We'll have beverages on board. As for the meals, uh, I always try to pick uh, restaurants that are typical to the, to the area we're going through. And... Uh, that's one of the things that uh, actually was very interesting during the tour with Dale. Uh, we stopped in the close to Narbonne. We stopped in a little crab shack that you, like you would find in the coast in Galveston, Louisiana. But of course, with fine French wines served, be, being served there and the food was absolutely amazing. And uh, so everywhere we go, we try to do restaurants that are typical to the area, but also very, very good. And of course, always with uh, good wines being served with the meal. Wonderful. Well, I find that people who love food are the best kind of people. I believe it. And um, this is a small group tour, so it's not going to be any more than 10-ish folks on the trip. So people can rest assured that this is not kind of a, a large group. It's small group travel. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's uh, 
I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons to do it. And actually, one of the biggest advantages is exactly that we can go into some wineries where we wouldn't be able to go with more people. Uh, so there's there's uh, very few wineries that are set up to receive a group of 20 plus people without a problem. Uh, and if they are, they're normally the wineries that you don't really want to visit anymore because they're just so pushing the people through there that uh, it's not not interesting really at all. Not, not, not really a learning experience. So. Right. Well, I want you to know that I'm taking my responsibility very seriously to brush up on all the French wines, French AOCs, French laws, etc. And just this morning, I spent three yeah. hours tasting French wine from... The Rhone. I went to the Academy du Rhone, which was in Dallas today, and I tasted eighteen wines um, before one p.m. So that was a that was a lot of wine, but um, really interesting to really dig into the nuances of the Rhone. And I'm also studying for my French wine scholar certification, so that is keeping me also quite busy uh, learning about all the in- intricacies of French wine, which I love dearly. Yes, yes, no, and, and we will have enough of wine, and we will have enough of wine before lunch too. <laughs> uh, but uh, as as you mentioned before, it's tasting of wines, not necessarily drinking of wine. So uh, I mean, we will taste a lot of wine. The drinking will happen more during the meals. Sure. But uh, we'll have to do a quiz at the end of the tour for everybody so that they know that they have to stay on, on board with the program. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's no no uh, knowledge needed to come on the trip, but you are going to leave with a good bit of knowledge. How, how's that? That's 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 exactly the, the, the idea. Great. Well, um, if people have questions about the tour, which is happening... April the 3rd through April the 14th of 2024. Uh, you're welcome to reach out to me at texaswinepod at gmail.com. You can also reach out to Pablo, who's uh, pablo at gourmettours.biz. And we'll be happy to answer questions, provide you any additional information that you need to uh, make a decision about signing up. I think that it will definitely be worthwhile for people to give this tour a look. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yes, I, I think so too. And and uh, of course, I always tell the people, don't wait too long because, you know, there is going to be the day that this tour is going to be sold out and uh, then there will not be any more places. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Well, as you heard, the focus of this trip is to explore places where many Texas grapes originate. And in the process, we'll visit over a dozen wineries, cultural sites, the Wine Museum in Bordeaux, and so much more. But let me assure you, you do not have to be an expert in Texas wine to come on this trip. This is for everyone to go experience what the South of France has to offer. And there's no test. There's no certification. This is just for fun. Like I said, there are only 10 spots. So you'll want to contact me or Pablo about this soon if you're interested. You can also go to my website, thisistexaswine.com, and check out the blog post to get the information that includes the dates and the prices. Find links to all of these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. This is the time in the podcast when I ask you to do a quick something for me. And there are a couple things that you can do for me today that are free and that help grow the podcast. One is to share the podcast with others. That's primarily how podcasts grow. And you can do that on social media by tagging at Texas Wine Pod in your stories and posts, or just send your friends 
a recent episode that you think they might enjoy. You can also review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify and leave a few remarks. And finally, you can visit my website to sign up for my occasional newsletter. That's where I'll communicate with you on my recent wine events and fun finds and wine and travel. Thanks, y'all. And now for our interview. Amy Nimick has only been living in the Texas Hill Country for about five years, but she's had her hand in a lot of different projects from owning a tasting room on Main Street to learning winemaking at several different wineries. She's written for and then ultimately become the co-owner of Texas Wine Lover website. She regularly holds tastings for wine professionals at her home. She's writing a book about her experiences becoming a winemaker, and she's also been instrumental in starting up a Hill Country chapter of Women for Wine Sense. I've enjoyed Amy's hospitality and wine knowledge and wine cellar on more than one occasion, but I learned things in this interview that I never knew about Amy. Maybe you will too. Here's our conversation. All right, Amy, tell me a little bit about your life before you were in the Hill Country. Gosh, I turned 50 this year, so I feel like that's a long life to talk about, although I know hopefully there's many more years to come in the industry. Um, I grew up on a farm in South Texas outside of Corpus Christi. Um, I actually went to college for aviation, little known fact. I'm actually a commercial instrument rated pilot um, for airplanes. I also have hours in helicopters and hot air balloons. I went to Arizona after college to take my first um, grown-up job that had health insurance and 401k and um, came home to visit the family um, and ran into Benji, who I had gone to high school with. We actually dated our um, senior year for a little bit and ran into him and we started dating long distance and um, ultimately I left my job in Arizona to come back to Texas He was finishing dental school, and so we started our life together in Austin. He um, started a dental practice, and I worked at the Austin airport at the time. Ended up leaving the airport to work in construction for a little while, and then ultimately um, started running his practice when he built his own practice in 2002. We got married in 2000, and then 2002, he built his own practice, and I started working with him running the business. It was supposed to be temporary, <laughs> and we kept along that path until until 2017. So I'll try to make this long story short, but he had a freak accident. A sinkhole happened underneath him while he was walking on a golf course in Florida. So he sustained an injury to his neck that was more severe than it was diagnosed, and he continued to work because we had the practice, it was our business, we had employees to support, we had patients to take care of, and he kind of just managed the pain until he got to a point a few years later um, when he um, lost the feeling in his right hand. So it was nerve damage in the neck that caused um, irreversible it was irreversible and he couldn't keep practicing anymore. So before that, about 2005, we were doing pretty good in our careers as true grownups. And we um, went to a food pairing dinner. We dabbled with a bottle of wine here or there when we went to get groceries or something. And Um, but really, you know, if we were drinking, I was a cosmopolitan kind of gal and he drank, you know, crown and Coke. So we started to dabble in wine a little bit and we went to this, um, food pairing dinner and it was 
completely just eye-opening. We had no idea that wine changed food and food changes wine. And so it was a um, Chanon Blanc by Alexandre Maumache um, from Vouvray, France, that really, like, wowed us. And so from that point in 2005, we started um, buying wine with intent. So I'd buy groceries, I'd be at Central Market in Austin, and I'd ask the guy in the wine department, you know, what do you think would go with this? And he'd make a suggestion, and I'd take it home. And while I was cooking, Benji would look up on the internet about the grape, about the winery, about the region, and he'd read to me while I was cooking. Um, He has a good reading voice, so (laughs) he'd be a good narrator. Um, And we just started to, you know, drink wine, um, kind of learning about it as we went. Our first Texas wine was Fall Creek um, in 2006. And, you know, we started to dabble a little bit in some of the wineries in the Hill Country. And then just shortly before his accident, um, we actually bought a piece of land out here in um, outside of Johnson City on Highway 290. I had this idea. I didn't know how to make wine, but I was completely enthralled with it. And I had this idea to... Um, start a winery and learn to make wine before I opened the winery (laughs) and to make wine from three different regions of the world. And I didn't know at the time all the red tape that is involved with that, but I had this great idea and hopefully someone will listen to this and they'll take the idea and do it. But I thought it would be really cool to get Sangiovese from Texas and Sangiovese from Oregon and Sangiovese from Italy and have that fruit sent to my little winery. And all I was going to make was those three wines. And that's all you get for that year. They were going to be made as closely in process as possible, using the same protocol as much as possible and show and be able to talk about the differences from the three different regions. Well, the accident happened and we got um, scared about finances and how we were going to make that happen if we didn't have income from a real job. And so we ended up selling that property and that property is now the lost straw second location um, right outside of Johnson City. So it's kind of cool to see it come, you know, I'm glad it became a, a vineyard and a winery because if it had become a, you know, RV park, you know, it would have been a little more sad to be like, oh, we had this vision and it didn't happen. At least this way we can be like, yeah, we, that's exactly the way we thought the vines would be. You know, that's exactly where we thought the tasting room would be. So that's been kind of cool. Um, but instead when we sold the dental practice and decided to make a move to the hill country, kind of to get away from everyone who knew his story, because we'd be at dinner or we'd be buying groceries and we'd get stopped by a patient who he'd have to just relive all the details over and over again. And it was very traumatic, not just the physical situation and the pain he was in, but the emotional, um, he was at the height. I mean, he was really doing well as a, as a dentist that specialized in a certain type of dentistry and he was 45 years old and had to quit. So we decided to leave, and I said, why don't we take the idea of Perspective Sellers, which was the name we had um, already registered for the vineyard slash winery that I thought I was going to start. And I said, why don't we just buy wines from around the world and compare them? So that's how we ended up in the Hill Country, made the move out here in 2018. 
and the um, tasting room was uh, or is on Main Street in Fredericksburg in the um, historic home that is where Admiral Nimitz was born. And we did tastings where we compared a wine from Texas to another New World region to an Old World region, and there was education. And I really, I wasn't trying to convince people that Texas was the best. I just wanted them to think outside of their comfort zone and to try something that they hadn't tried before. Um, Our Cabernet Sauvignon flight did not have a Napa cab. Everyone knows Napa cab. We're comfortable with that. So get uncomfortable. We had Texas and Mexico and Israel for old world. So it was a lot of fun until COVID. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I remember on one of the early podcasts, you got some press. I don't remember the source, but it came on my radar because it mentioned that you were offering tastings comparing Texas wines to other things in the world. I probably mispronounced your name. That's okay. That's a great way to introduce people to to Texas wine, I think, using it in a flight. It was a lot of fun, and it was surprising to me not having been so deep into Texas wine at the time, um, how many of our wines really compare very nicely to the old world example. Maybe not so much to the other new world examples, but there's a lot of similarities in in most of the old world regions that the grape originates. And I found that to be fascinating and something that I liked to show people and to be like, you know, California, California wines are great. You know, that's, it's awesome that you drink California wine. I'd rather you drink California wine than no wine at all, right? Because that's at least helping the industry to some level. But at the same time, it's an anomaly. It California is not the norm. What they get there is not what we get everywhere else in the world. I'm not even talking about just Texas. Um, so it, it was interesting to see um, how many people don't drink a lot of old world wine, just when we're talking about normal consumers, not those of us that are weirdos that drink wine every day and all over the world, right? Yep, yep. But it was a lot of fun. And then um, COVID hit and I worked really hard to stay relevant. I did interviews with all my winemaking friends around around the area, you know, tried to post videos, tried to keep information and education going with videos for people that wanted to find me, you know, sent out emails all the time to our list of, of customers that had signed up for our emails. And at the same time, I started soul searching a little bit and thought, you know, I've, I took my first Psalm exam in 2010. Um, it was actually with Daniel um, Kaleda through International Wine Guild um, in Austin that year. And so fast forward, you know, I have this wine shop and I'm having a good time, but I really thought my next step was to understand production a little better because you can read about it, but it isn't the same as being hands-on. And so I um, decided to enroll in the certification program with Texas Tech, and I thought I could do it all. I could uh, go back to school and I could run the business with very little staff, um, But at that point, we didn't even know if and when we'd be reopened and how the world was going to end up. Um, But I had made the decision that I was ready to get into production in whatever way I could. And then we were able to reopen. And 21, you know, in the spring, we reopened. And the drinkers on Main Street in Fredericksburg were a little bit different than a lot of people didn't weren't interested in the education and the experience. People were just trying to get out of town and go somewhere and get out of their home. And they would come to Fredericksburg and 
I guess they thought because we were a small town, COVID didn't exist here. (laughs) And, you know, it was just a weird, it was a really weird time. And everyone was very fast paced and they wanted to drink, but not have a wine experience. And luckily that wasn't the case at the wineries. You know, the wineries did pretty well during that time. Um, but downtown, you know, with that row of shops and the, the breweries and the wineries and the tastings, people just wanted to be quick and cheap. And I got a little burnout and, um, still had everything in line to start, um, the Texas tech courses that fall when, um, a a friend of mine reached out and asked if I could go wine tasting so that she could pick my brain about opening a wine, a wine store or a wine shop, a wine bar. And I said, well, instead of starting one from scratch, why don't you take mine? And she said, oh my God, Perspective Sellers is for sale. And I was like, well, no, but yes. I mean, everything's for sale. You know, we could (laughs) talk about it. And so long story short, um, she took over Perspective Sellers and she's um, put her own twist on it. And um, she has a lot of really great old world wines. Um, She really loves Italian. So it's a good spot to go if you ever need a a bottle of Italian wine. She only has a few Texas wines um, and she's not doing the comparison flights. She's still doing flights, but it'll be a flight of Texas wine or um, a flight of rosé, but it not, isn't, in the same educational component that I had, but she put her own spin on it. And her husband is a concert pianist. They have a piano bar on Friday and Saturday nights. It has a very upbeat, fun environment. She loves hosting bachelorette parties and, and it's just a really fun, upbeat spot and really cute and cozy. You know, the decor is really beautiful, but it's different than what I started with. But by by transitioning that to her, it allowed me to focus on production. So in addition to starting um, the, the courses um, with Texas Tech, I was able to slide into the cellar at Hilmi and work with Michael Barton, who I've been friends with since he moved back to town. So I can't believe you've only been in the Hill Country since 2018, frankly, because as many people as you know, it, I thought you must have been here for decades. <laughs> I I just kind of inserted myself. I mean, for good or for bad, um, I actually think um, one big catalyst for me was Carl Hudson and Lori Ware. The two of them were writing for Texas Wine Lover. Um, Lori had heard, frankly, both of them had heard gossip that this new girl in town was serving wine and comparing Texas. And, and they, I think they both kind of thought that I was not necessarily promoting Texas. And so, um, Lori came in and had a tasting experience with me and she quickly brought Carl in. Next thing I know, they're spreading the word and starting to introduce me to more people that I hadn't known in the industry. But a lot, I'd met a lot of winemakers because I would go knock on the door and say, I have this place in town. I, I have anywhere from 10 to 15 flights at a time, which means I need 10 to 15 different Texas wines, 10 to 15 different new world from another region, 10 to 15 old world. And so I like to rotate the flights every month or two. So I was constantly needing new wine Um, I didn't have to do it that way, but that was what was fun for me. So I just 
went in and introduced myself and said what I was doing and that I wanted to help spread the word about their winery and I wanted to know their story. I like to share the story. Um, I don't like to say, you know, this is a Sangiovese, you should taste cherry and a little orange peel. And, you know, I don't want to tell a consumer what they should like about a wine or why they should like it. I like to tell the story about the grape and the producers and the families. And I still like to do that. Um, which is why I keep pouring wine in my house every week <laughs> for friends. Anyone, anyone who wants to come have wine. <laughs> Love it. Now that you have spent some time in wine production, are you as enthralled with it as ever? Or what surprised you about um, your experiences either in the classroom or working in cellars? So I very quickly told Michael I was going to write a book because winemaking is not romantic and it is not glamorous and people should know that it is very hard and it is very wet and it's a lot of cleaning. I knew that it was cleaning because, you know, sanitary, it's a food product. We're going to ingest it, but really it's a lot of cleaning. Like you have to clean and then you have to clean it again and then And then maybe you're going to use it the next day. So you have to clean it that next morning, you know? So it's repetitive cleaning. Luckily, I liked it. (laughs) I learned, you know, the right shoes, the right socks, you know, what to wear so you didn't have wet feet all day, every day. But there were plenty of times that I was drenched head to toe. Um, I'm small, so I can get through the little doors in a tank to get inside to clean it. So... Um, that tends to be a job I am often relegated to. I guess you're not too claustrophobic. No, you can't be. I mean, yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so it's not romantic, um, but I still really like it. I mean, there's so many different parts to it. There's so many moving parts. Um, I was going to name the book, So You Want to Be a Winemaker, dot, dot, dot. You know, it's not romantic. Um, I've since decided that I don't want to take the romance away from a regular consumer. If they think it's romantic and that keeps them buying wine, then let them be delusional. (laughs) (laughs) So now the book has changed. The book is now, um, wine lover to winemaker, and hopefully it'll be done this summer and print this summer. Um, and I do tell some of the real stories about the dirty and the reality and the, you know, not so fun stuff, the snakes in the vineyard, you know, um, the constant cleaning, the math, there's a lot of math, there's a lot of chemistry. Um, I'm fascinated by the lab work. I wasn't good in chemistry when I was younger, but they never put it in these terms, right? (laughs) Yeah. I have a whole new appreciation for various sciences, including earth sciences that I didn't have as a younger student. Absolutely. Um, when I was flying, I mean, there's a lot of geometry in flying. There's a lot of math in flying. And if if my teachers in high school had related it that way and had made it sound like, hey, if you know your math, you could fly airplanes. You know, if you know your math, you could make wine. I probably would have paid a little more attention. But here I am reinventing myself, um, <laughs> learning all those things that I should have learned when I was younger. <laughs> Are you as interested in the vineyard? I have certain parts of the vineyard that I really love. Um, I love pruning. I love training younger vines that, and, you know, um, helping them. Like, I feel like, oh, this little baby needs help. Um, I don't love when it starts to get hot 
and the snakes and the, you know, wasps and yellow jackets and all of the creatures that are part of, you know, the great outdoors. Yeah. <laughs> they love the vineyard. Um, but I, I do, I do appreciate it quite a bit. I like seeing the development. Um, I've helped harvest, um, many times. First time we helped harvest was at Stonehouse, which is in Spicewood. Um, it was probably around 2011 or 12. We harvested with them, um, three, three years in a row. It was hot and we still went back, you know, and then we'd go buy the wine because we were connected to that particular harvest. And I still do that now with anyone that needs a hand out here. So after you, um, worked harvest with Michael Barton at Helmy. What what was next for you? Well, I was super excited, lucky um, that I was able to get a small amount of fruit. Um, I worked as a unpaid intern because I didn't know how to connect a hose to a tank. I didn't know what a C clamp was or a butterfly clamp or, you know, I didn't know anything about pumps or any of that stuff. So I had to learn all of it. And, um, I got lucky that there was a, a little bit of extra um, Montepulciano, a little bit more than what they had bargained for, um, came from Pepper Jack Vineyard in the High Plains. And so it was one a, one bin, so half a ton. And so I got to make my own decisions about processing that fruit, and it made one barrel of wine. And so I would get to pop in and, you know, check on it and run the labs on it and add sulfur and do the things that needed to be done and keep an eye on it. And I was really working on, um, the next, you know, really finalizing the plan for my book and doing a lot of writing. And I started doing a little more writing for Jeff at Texas wine lover, um, at that time and writing about my experiences in the cellar and kind of what I was learning. And then I got, um, a call from, um, Michael Bilger at, um, Adega Vinho and, um, if you don't already know this, um, more than 50% of the winemakers in Texas are named Michael. <laughs> Seems that way. <laughs> um, but he was ready to have some help in the cellar. He needed a part-time assistant and he knew that, you know, I had some flexibility and so it just worked out that I could go and help him. Um, so I started with him in, I guess, end of February of 22 and, um, did some cellar work and did some, blending and, you know, cleaning and moving, you know, rack and return and moving things around. And then it was time to get in the vineyard and, um, the vineyard needed some extra attention to try to get it to the level that he wanted it. And he really believes, um, a lot in sustainable or regenerative farming practices. And so, you know, we, got in the vineyard and I was out there at 6am and I'm not a morning person. So my husband was like, well, you must really like what you're doing because you're getting out there early. Um, but I didn't like to work past noon cause it was hot. Um, but I helped train the vines and helped, um, you know, decide which ones were not going to make a comeback that year and needed to be pulled up and replanted some and did because of the timing did more vineyard work than wine work. And then, I got an offer from Sonoma, um, from Gary Farrell in the Russian River Valley. I had met the winemaker in 21 um, on vacation. I was with one of the growers that they buy from and um, met the winemaker, Teresa. And they had offered me a job in 21 because they were short on interns because of COVID and travel and stuff. 
And I said, I couldn't make it happen, but if they needed someone in the future, let me know. And so they did. So I went to Michael and said, I'm so sorry, but I got an offer in Sonoma and, you know, I'm getting old. I don't know how much longer I can do this sort of thing. And I think I have to take the chance. And uh, he's a huge fan of a Russian river Chardonnay. Dave Ramey's one of his heroes. And so he said, if I had the chance, I would do it. I think you should. But you've got to go to Ramey while you're out there, (laughs) which I did. I brought him back a bottle. (laughs) Very nice. I really enjoyed reading your harvest experiences in California. Man, I know that's not easy. I mean, physically, it's not easy. It's not. Um, California was a totally different scale just because of where I was. They do have small wineries. But um, here, um, where I had worked, I've you know helped at Hilmi. I helped at Adega Vinho. I helped at Whisper Path with Jesse Varial, who's in San Antonio. Um and we're talking about, you know, Whisper Path was like at 800 cases. And, you know, Hilmi's, you know, 25, 2,500. And, you know, Dega's kind of in the middle, um, probably about 15. And I get out there and we're talking about, you know, 400,000 cases. And we had 417 tons that came in that season. And the weather was weird there as well as, as here. It was really hot here in, um, in, in 22. I'm like, what year are we in? It was in 22 and it was hot here, but it also got really hot there. We had three days that were over 115, three days in a row. We, my husband and I took our RV and our dog and, you know, we were living in our RV and the, the AC and the RV couldn't get the RV below 80 degrees and the dog was like, he's a big fur ball and he is just dying. So my husband's like in the Tesla driving him around with the AC cranked and he's just driving, you know, because he's like, we can't sit in the RV. Where are we going to go? You know? So he's just driving around and (laughs) parks at a parking lot and gets on his iPad for a little while and then drives around some more. So their harvest happened faster than most years. There were three different days that we got more than 30 tons in a day. Um, so to put that in perspective, Becker probably does about half of what, of what they did. Um, and so here I was used to these wineries doing, you know, a, a 10th, yeah, <laughs> you know, <much> smaller, production. <laughs> yeah, 15% of that. So, um, we had a lot of, they got seven interns that year. They had a staff of four. Um, the head winemaker, the assistant winemaker, the cellar master, and the enologist in the lab. And then they would bring on six to eight interns for harvest. And they mainly got um, kids out of Europe that were in school for viticulture or enology or agriculture. And those kids had to be there a certain amount of time to get their credit. So they got there before I did. And because I was flexible, I was the last one to start, so um, they didn't have to pay me for when they didn't really have work for me, you know. And what ended up happening is that I got put on the um, sorting table because I paid attention, and I would grab the winemaker and say, this is what the fruit looks like, you know, do you want me to sort out this bit or leave it in because there's a lot of this or, you know, whatever the case was. Um, there's a lot of underripe berries, you know, there's a lot of 
decay or whatever the case may be. And when she put the kids on the line, they would be on their phone while sorting. You know, they'd be messing around on text or on Facebook or whatever, you know. Well, they were younger, so they're not on Facebook. They're on Instagram. TikTok, probably. (laughs) TikTok, yeah. Each intern was kind of given a role they were responsible for, for the majority of the time during harvest. So you got good at that one role and it wasn't, everything was coming in so fast and in such big quantities. I mean, we had super long days. Um, and they have a lot of labor laws in California. You know, you have to take an, you have to take a 15 minute break, you know, clock out after, two and a half hours or three hours or whatever it was, you have to be clocked out for an hour, um, for lunch, you know, halfway through your work day. If you worked more than eight hours, you got time and a half, which was great. But you also, um, they had to pay a fine to the state if you worked more and we had to work more because there was fruit that had to be taken care of, you know? And so it, it was interesting just to see some of the differences being there versus here. That's not to say that, anyone ever abused me here in Texas. Um, but it just, it was different to Hmm. see, um, some of the regulations because they're further along than we are, you know, but clearly you had enough fun that you're going back to a new winery this year. Yes. So, um, on my, on our last day before we left to come home, we, we'd gone into Napa a few times, um, when we had, when I had a day off, um, and on our last day we went to, um, a wine club that is, we only, we're only a member of two clubs and they're wines that we can't get in Texas without being in the club. And this is the first wine club we ever joined in 2010, 10 or 11. When we went to Napa, um, one of the, um, servers at another winery had recommended this place and it was by appointment only. And so we went and we loved it. And, um, it's anomaly vineyard in, Santa Elena and very private experience, very small winery. And so we joined their club and we still get their wines today. And so we went to pick up our allocation and they had just brought in their last load of fruit and they were hosing off the crush pad and, you know, drink, drinking a beer because it takes a lot of beer to make wine. That's what they say. <laughs> and, and they said, well, are you coming back to California next year? And, and I said, if y'all are hiring and, you know, we laughed about it and they said, we've never hired someone next year before this vintage is even over. And then I got a call from them in February this year, um, offering for me to come work. So I text back and forth with, um, with the winemaker, um, George, um, he's fascinated by how much faster our growing process is here compared to there. So we share vineyard pictures and I've got my list of wines I'm going to take out to share with him and the owners. So good. Yeah. So you won't be one of seven or eight interns. They've got a guy um, that worked for them last harvest. And then they'll probably have someone, you know, kind of real part time one or two days a week when it just happens to be a heavy day. But they're 1200 cases. So they're more in line with the folks I'm used to around here. They're all estate fruit and they pretty much make a Bordeaux blend, you know, one wine a year. Um, so it might be a little faster, you know, than what I experienced last year in Sonoma. And frankly, I feel like I have an opportunity to bring back, um, just kind of some ideas 
I think in hospitality, um, California is a little further along than us. Um, I say that the reason I'm hesitating with this is because on Friday with our tours, our hospitality experiences were fantastic. Um, so it's kind of like, I feel like we're, we're making steps. A lot of our wineries are making steps in the right direction when it comes to providing experiences, um, for the customers beyond a standard tasting. Um, but I think with this type of smaller scale, I don't, I don't think I'm going to learn something that I'm going to come home and call up every Texas winemaker I know and say, you should be doing this. You know, I didn't, that didn't happen last year with a bigger producer. There wasn't any magic thing that I learned that, that I thought, you know, the main thing I learned is that the guys I was learning from here know what they're doing, you know? So it was a little more affirmation than it was education, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But I still like to see how it's different. So this time around, this will probably be the last time I travel for harvest. Um, and we're just going to do it because, because we can. And then, you know, when That's I get great. back, I'll see what happens next. I'm not going because I think that they're doing things better than we are. I just want to know if there's any little gem, if there's any little, little thing that could make a little impact here. And it may not be winemaking. It may be service. It may be, it may be something in the vineyard, you know, it, it may be nothing at all. It may be that I've already learned that there's a bocce ball court, a block from this vineyard that, you know, that's where all the industry goes. Maybe we need that here. Maybe we need a place for our, our industry to gather that isn't, um, focused around a conference. You know, maybe we just need a casual spot that is an organized, okay, on Thursdays, winemakers go play bocce ball. So Absolutely. maybe I'll come back and build a bocce ball court. I love it. Maybe that's the thing. Well, all, all wine travel expands your horizons, whether you go as a consumer or I imagine if you go as a part-time employee. Yeah. So that's great. Well, one thing that you've embarked upon recently is becoming the co-owner of Texas Wine Lover with Jeff Cope. And I've had Jeff on the podcast before, but for people who might not have heard that in a while... Um, tell me about Texas Wine Lover and also tell me um, how this all came to be. Yeah. So when I left for Sonoma, um, I really kind of thought that I would come back and I would spend the rest of the year of 22 finishing my book and getting it to the publisher. Um, anyone who's ever written a book before knows that it's um, not easy and it's, it's really easy to get distracted, really hard to stay on course. Um, and I continued to make myself available to anyone that needed anyone here in the hill country that needed help bottling or, you know, rack and return or, you know, just whatever. Um, and I really started thinking about what is my next step? Do I, I've got this wine in a barrel at Hillme, right? What am I going to do with it? Am I going to, um, get a permit and make my own label. And am I going to have a tasting room? Am I going to try to sell my wine, you know, to stores and restaurants? I only have a barrel that's 24 and a half cases, right? 
So I ended up um, bottling that wine at Hilmi um, by hand in December, uh, middle of December, and brought home my case goods and put them in our um, guest room walk-in closet. Nice. They're still sitting there, safe and sound, temperature controlled. But the thing that I decided was I want to make wine every year. I made a little Pinot Noir Rosé um, in Sonoma last year. It was only 10 cases. But I like, and I make wine in my laundry room. I buy juice and experiment with stuff because, you know, I'm new at this and I I learn it better doing it than reading it in the books, you know. And so my next juice just arrived and I'm going to make a batch of wine in two weeks and start fermenting and, you know, drink it. See what happens. Yeah. Um, but I decided that I felt more of a draw to help the people that I've gotten to know in the industry here as opposed to have a label with my name on it. Um, I still want to make wine in small amounts and whether I end up selling it or just giving it away remains to be seen. But I don't want to work at one winery because I think that I think that I have a passion that can help more than just one winery. So I was trying to come up with what that looks like. And at the same time, I'm, I'm working on the book and I'm writing for Jeff and I'm, you know, helping out here and there. And Jeff um, put a lot of his own money into redesigning the website last year and creating a mobile app. And he um, naively didn't realize how much extra work that was going to be once they launched. And he's a computer guy. He knows all the IT stuff that I never want to know. And it's more work. And he's like, he needs more interaction with the wineries um, because of all the features that are on this new platform. Um, And he doesn't have the time to do it and maintain the back end. And so he um, called me one day and said, um, we were chatting about what I was doing and, and he said, you know, I really think I need someone like you, um, to help me out with, with the communication, you know, and talking to the wineries and keeping our writers on task and making sure we have good content and making sure that the wineries all claim their listing. All 508 wineries that exist in the state today have a free listing on the platform, but the wineries need to help us out help, help me help you, Jerry Maguire. Exactly. <laughs> you know, they need to claim their listing and keep it up to date. So the, um, the hours, their business hours that we have published were the hours that he found by looking at their website when he started this process a year ago. Well, their hours might've changed and they need to manage that. And it doesn't take but a red hot second to do it. Um, but, but we need that help so that the website can be everything that it can be, um, which now sounds like a commercial for the military, but (laughs) be all you can be. Um, but we, he said he needed help and I said, well, I'll keep my ears open. And, and he said, um, well, I really need someone like you who isn't afraid to, you know, just get out and talk to people and isn't afraid to knock on doors or, you know, introduce yourself or talk in front of a crowd. And, and I said, okay, okay, I'll look for someone, you know, no one comes to mind right now. And he's like, Amy, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to be my business partner. Do you want to be my partner? Do you want to help me with this? And I was like, oh my God, wow. (laughs) I'm so flattered, you know? And so he might tell the story a little differently, but that's how (laughs) I remember it. Um, so we just, 
you know, kind of talked about it a little bit and neither of us really knew what that, what a partnership was going to look like. Um, but we both kind of slept on it and then made a time to talk again and a lot of emails back and forth and, um, decided that it was a good fit because being a part of this, you know, one central location that can truly be everything that a consumer could possibly need when they're trying to discover Texas wine. Um, it was like, wow, this is actually exactly what I was looking for that I didn't know I was looking for. So I joined him the end of June and, um, no end of January, joined him the end of January, um, this year. And my role is kind of evolving. Um, he's, he's not used to having help yet. And he's also not used to having to explain everything that's in his head. Um, so it took me a little while to understand everything that's possible on the website and everything that's possible on the app. Um, but that's where we are. Like we're moving to, you know, the next phase, which is, um, really trying to get feedback from businesses as to, how they think Texas Wine Lover can help. Um, We're adding new filters every week. Um, So when you are on the website, um, there's a menu across the top, and there's one of the menu items is the guide. And so the guide um, directly feeds the app. So everything that's in the guide is in the app. The rest of the website is exclusive to the website. So the blog post and the list of vineyards, we have almost every single vineyard in the state. Um, and I don't know of any other place that the vineyards are listed. So there's a lot of information there, but you've got to know what's there to know that it can help you, you know? So the guide, um, lets a consumer, um, plan an itinerary if they want to take a trip or just find a winery close to them and they can filter by the day of the week whether they allow walk-ins, whether they're kid-friendly or pet-friendly. They can also find what winery has a particular wine. So I'm in the mood for a Sauvignon Blanc. It's hot outside. I want a bright, crisp, high-acid wine. That's what I'm in the mood for. Who has it near me? And I can search for Sauv Blanc. And so that stuff to me is super cool, and it can help drive customers to the wineries. Um, But we need a little bit of help from the businesses to actually put the information there so that the platform is as robust as it can be. So in addition to wineries, what other kinds of businesses are you talking about? Yeah. So this is kind of a new feature that didn't really exist in the website before the app um, came to be. So we actually have a category for where to eat. We have a category for where to stay, where to drink that isn't a winery. And that might be a wine bar, but not a producer. Um, Or it might be just a bar in general or a distillery or a brewery. Um, It's kind of like drink slash nightlife. Um, Then there's, um, you know, where to shop even. And then there's another feature that is services. And that's going to roll us into a whole nother... um, can of worms here very soon. So services is everything that doesn't fall into one of those other categories. And so within services, there's a subcategory for tours. And so you can search for a tour company, you know, by region or by who's closest to you. Um, but also within that we can, we can have other business services. So 
an accountant that helps wineries or a marketing company or social media company. Um, so the next big thing that we'll be launching this year is um, to have, to not only be all things Texas wine for the consumers, but to be a place for the industry to go. So if you need a bookkeeper and you are a winery, you can actually search within the behind the scenes industry part of the website that the consumers won't have access to. And you can, you can put out on a message board, Hey, who, who can recommend a, um, who can recommend a bookkeeper? You know, I don't want someone in house. I want to contract someone, you know, who do you use? Who can you recommend? So I can see there being a forum, um, where we can have Q and a kind of stuff. Um, I mean, it could be, I, I've lost my picking bins since last harvest. Who's seen a bin that has a logo that looks like this, you know, or someone can say, I've got a little extra fruit coming in, you know, I, I contracted for it and by God, it actually is all coming in this year. So I've got some fruit to sell. So I, our aim is to really be truly the place for anyone in Texas wine to be able to find anything they need to know. Big goal. Yeah. And the app is reasonably new. It is. So it launched in December, end of December. And, um, you know, uh, Jeff being an IT guy, he wanted everything perfect before it launched. And that's not possible. So there've had to been, you know, there's been a couple of updates to kind of correct a few things and to improve a few things. And um, it's really solid. And it has, like I said, a great mapping feature. Um, I'm going to... Um, Northeast Texas this coming weekend, um, going to Keepersaw for a vertical tasting. It's my first time to go. And so I'm able to see what wineries are near there. What are their hours? You know, what days are they open? And I can plan my trip because even though I'm in the industry, that's an area I'm not familiar with. And I need to know how to best use my time. Um, and I was able to find out that Keepersaw has an RV park. And so I could just book right, right through their website, you know? And so it saved me having to search all over the internet because it's all in one place. That's cool. Well, tomorrow I'm driving from Fredericksburg to Nacogdoches. <laughs> you could do the same. I, I should. I might just do that <laughs> when we get off of here. Um, well, I feel like a lot of people listening probably already know about Texas Wine Lover and the robust online community too. A lot, of, lot going on all the time really on Facebook. And one thing I wanted to, to ask you about is, is Texas Wine Lover for Texans who love wine or for people who love Texas wine or both? Yes, <laughs> it's both. I mean, um, Jeff created the website. He created it 12 years ago. Um, and he did it as a way to track where he and Gloria were going around the state just to keep track of what the experience was like and what wine they liked and be able to look back and remember. And then he thought, you know, other people might want this information too. And so he made it into a website. And then as time progressed, he he added more features and he started writing more than just what winery went to. And then he brought on um, contributing writers that could write more educational pieces and then social media. And so now he's got a Facebook um, presence and a Instagram and, and Twitter. And then, you know, it progresses a little more and there's uh, he created a private group on Facebook. So anyone who is a, 
um, wine lover can request to be in the Facebook group. But when you request to be in the group, it says this is a, a place for um, lovers of Texas wine and wine lovers who live in Texas. And while our focus is on Texas, um, we both believe strongly that there are, there are a lot, Texans buy a lot of wine on an annual basis, but they don't buy enough Texas wine. I just heard a number um, from Marissa Bingham yesterday at um, Women for Wine Sense at the conference. She said, if we could just convert 2% of Texas wine drinkers to drinking Texas, um, that would, you know, make a huge impact on the industry. And 2% is a small number. So if we only talk about Texas and we don't talk about any wine outside of Texas, we're alienating people who don't already know Texas. Whereas if we can be a little bit broader in some respects, if we can give a little bit of general wine education, um, if we can talk about Tempranillo and explain what the grape is and maybe give a good producer from Spain along with some recommendations in Texas, we're going to draw those. We have more opportunity to draw in people who aren't already drinking Texas. So, so the answer is yes. I mean, we, we want to be both, um, but we want to represent Texas first, just keeping the door open for people who aren't already familiar and cheerleaders for the Texas wine industry. And it's true that even those of us who are very committed to Texas wine also drink wines from around the world. And we should. One big problem in the wine world is, is a winemaker who only drinks his own wine and never looks beyond his own cellar. Um, it doesn't, help you to know what's happening elsewhere in the world. It doesn't help you um, be a better winemaker or to know how you're comparing. So we should drink other wines, but in my opinion, we should drink that other wine alongside a Texas example, because it's going to help us to know, you know, how we're stacking up, how we're doing as an industry. Well, I appreciate you being here today, and I think that Jeff has made a very wise decision because you are such a people person, and you bring people together and have a lot of energy for this. So I think Thanks. it'll be a great partnership, and I wish you all the best. And now that I know that you're going to be keeping the writers honest and on our toes, I better get busy writing something. Yes, you have requirements now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Shelley. Thanks, Amy. We'll be watching for your harvest stories on Texas Wine Lover. And wineries, if you haven't already, please claim your listing on the Texas Wine Lover website. The basic level is free, but there are even more benefits if you upgrade to a higher level of membership. And if you're interested in Women for Wine Sense Hill Country chapter, email hillcountrywinesense at gmail.com. Stay tuned for demerits and gold stars. I'm gearing up for the fall podcast season. I've got about eight episodes still to come in 2023, and I'm busy scheduling interviews and editing recordings. I'm also seeking new sponsors for this space and for the pre-roll ads at the top of the show for 2023. If your target market is Texas wine professionals, enthusiastic wine consumers, or just plain old Texans, we should talk. Reach out to find out how to put podcast advertising to work for you. 
If you found value from this podcast, I invite you to consider supporting the pod with a donation. You can do that on the website, This Is Texas Wine, and then click Support the Podcast. And finally, when you're considering lodging in Fredericksburg, check out Cork and Cactus. It's a two-bedroom, one-bath home with a great location just a few blocks from Main Street. The link is in the show notes. And now it's time for demerits and gold stars. Gold stars go out to all the folks who are on the news talking about the harvest in Texas. Congrats to Susan Johnson of Texas Heritage Vineyards and Chase Jones of Slate Theory Winery and to Karen Bonarigo of Messinahoff Winery for their recent appearances on the news. Susan and Chase were recently interviewed by a San Antonio news station about this year's harvest, and there's some great footage of harvest in action. Meanwhile, Karen was on the Dallas-Fort Worth News talking about some of Messinahoff's wines and their upcoming Harvest Festival activities. This next bit is less of a demerit and more of an educational segment. There's always some confusion over certain wine terms, and the wine terms that we're talking about today are primary, secondary, and tertiary. It may seem like all those would mean the same thing, but in varying quantities, like certain aromas stand out more, so they're primary, and the ones that are faintest are tertiary, but no, that's not at all what those words mean. Primary flavors and aromas are those that are considered to come directly from the grapes. All the fruit flavors and also some herbal or floral notes, really anything that you're just picking up straight from the fruit. Secondary aromas are aromas that come from the winemaking process, from fermentation, from malolactic conversion, and especially from the influence of oak. Think flavors and aromas like toast, vanilla, cedar, spice, or coconut. These can include the biscuit and yeasty notes that appear from Lee's stirring or the very distinct buttery popcorn aroma that's a byproduct of malolactic fermentation and many Chardonnays. And then finally, tertiary aromas and flavors occur when wine is aged. In red wines, over time, fresh ripe fruit starts to transform into stewed or dried fruit like raisin or fig. You also may get tertiary aromas like tobacco, earth, and mushroom. White wines over time will start to develop aromas like dried apricot, almonds, or candied fruit. Floral characteristics become less of like a fresh-cut rose or violet, and they start to take on more of a dried potpourri aroma. Other tertiary characteristics include nutty aromas and spice components like nutmeg, ginger, and petrol. So I hope that that helps explain primary, secondary, and tertiary, or is a quick reminder. I'll link to a wine enthusiast article that I use to prepare this segment, and it's also part of the curriculum for the Wine and Spirit Education Trust courses. Well, that's it for this episode. If you're hoping to get out to a grape harvest or a grape stomp, you better get on it quick. Now's the time. Catch my next episode in early September. I'm really excited about the interviews I've got coming up in the next couple of months, and I know you will be too. To get in touch, you can send your feedback, ideas, or questions to texaswinepod at gmail.com or come see me at my tastings for Texas Wine Club in Dallas. You can sign up and learn more at txwine.com. And don't forget, you can even join the Texas Wine Club using the code thisistexaswine for $100 off. Finally, thank you to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. And thank you for listening. Cheers, y'all.